I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, the show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. If you watch the assault on the nation's capital on January 6, 2021, you would have seen people carrying flags with bright symbols on them, hats that said 1776, T-shirts that declared hashtag stop the steal. What you were seeing were memes, words, images, phrases that possessed a kind of coded meaning to the people who were there and some of the people watching it unfold on television. Memes, argue the three authors of a new book about them, are a, quote, badge of identity, powerful shortcuts to provoking an emotional response. And our guest argues that they are deeply influential in accelerating the culture wars we find ourselves in the midst of. On this January 6, 2023, a conversation about the role memes played in the insurrection and our ongoing dysfunctional political system. Joan Donovan is the research director at the Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center at Harvard, and she's the co-author, along with Emily Dreyfus and Brian Friedberg, of Meme Wars, the untold story of the online battles upending democracy in America. Joan Donovan, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much. First revelation from your book for me was how long memes have been around. I, I thought this was a contemporary, you know, social media online thing, but it sounds like Benjamin Franklin would have recognized a meme during the French and Indian War. How did that happen? How does that work? Yeah, I think one of the things that as a society, uh, we've learned to communicate through not just words, but also symbols. And memes are a reference to a kind of idea or concept that is conveyed in either very short slogans or images. And so, you know, before we think about, you know, probably the most obvious use of memes is the business of advertising and jingles and sloganeering and little mascots that are used to promote brands. But politically, uh, the use of the rattlesnake in particular in early uh, U.S. Americana uh, messaging was, uh, was a favorite symbol. And for Benjamin Franklin, he used uh, the rattlesnake as this symbol uh, for this woodcut that he made that underneath it, it says join or die. And then above it, it has the uh, colonial states in segments. And the idea was for him was pretty simple is that Americans are like rattlesnakes in that they will warn you before they strike. And this idea of, you know, join or die in morphed over the years into other kinds of memes, uh, particularly the very same sentiment is circulated amongst people in a meme that's very popular online, which is fool around and find out. Uh, I won't use the the, sl- uh, the, mm-hmm. the swear word that, you know, fool usually uh, represents. But that those kind of sentiments and those kinds of ideas um, move through our culture because of the way that they are short and sticky and represent so much more than they actually are. And so the internet, um, the dawn of the internet was filled with memes, especially as people were sharing funny pictures and uh, you had these developments of uh, memes like Grumpy Cat 
or other cat memes like I can has cheeseburger that were, you know, just kind of funny ways of signaling that, you know, you're part of the Internet, you're part of this world. Uh, and our book really centers on uh, how memes become political speech. And so we look at the political use of memes basically from Occupy to the insurrection. Uh, but we do go back and think about early meme uses like the Gadsden flag, which is the yellow flag that says don't tread on me with the with the rattlesnake on it, as well as uh, Ben Franklin's iconic join or die woodcut. I think you've alluded to something that's important to understand. Memes, humor can be really important to memes. Memes are not necessarily sinister. Some of them are in good fun, right? I, I don't want people to begin this listening to the discussion to think when you see a meme, there's some kind of ominous undertone to that. And you have to, you have to beware of all memes. You're really not saying that. No, some memes, uh, you know, <laughs> there's a meme that's, we can have a little fun as a treat, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's just kind of, you know, the way that I think about it is memes are short, quippy ways to uh, signal that you're part of something and what's great about memes when they work within small groups is they can really illuminate specific experiences. You know, so if you're a cheerleader, there are cheerleader memes. If you're a, a veteran or military family, there are military memes. Uh, and our culture has always had different ways that subcultures signal to one another. Uh, and through the Internet, that kind of subcultural or identity expression has become very, very important, particularly signaling what kind of political subculture you might be involved in. Here's where it gets tricky. Take something like uh, QAnon memes during the pandemic. There was this concerted effort by this group of uh, people who believed that the Democrat Party were uh, basically had invented COVID to uh, so that they could win the 2020 election. That's just one version of QAnon. Uh, but during that time, they also had this campaign called Save the Children, where if you remember, there were these protests happening in the streets where people were suggesting that also the Democrat Party was uh, participating in global child exploitation. And yeah. Oh, yeah. this these Save the Children memes, though, became very popular uh, outside of QAnon, because normal people don't support child trafficking. That's it's an abomination. It's and so people were showing their support uh, to stop child trafficking, but at the same time they were spreading these QAnon memes and didn't really understand what they were also signaling. And so sometimes memes can be very tricky, especially if it's hard to decode who the author is, and or what the origin source is. Speaking of QAnon, just since you've brought this up, what happened to QAnon? I mean, are you watching kind of the natural death of a meme, or was there something that expedited the end of QAnon? Because I don't see any, you know, I see QAnon doesn't show up on protest signs anymore. I don't see much reference to it online. What's your sense about mm -hmm. what happened? Yeah, so there's a couple of things at work here. One, it has to do with how 
uh, politics and particularly Trump administration failed uh, these QAnon fans of Trump. Every, uh, QAnon worked on a series of predictions that Trump was going to put, uh, he was going to drain the swamp and he was going to lock her up and that uh, he was working with uh, Mueller on the investigation that was going to put every Democrat criminal in jail. And so as these predictions didn't happen, they didn't materialize, and uh, Trump was not the victor of the 2020 election, these groups of people started to slowly lose faith, particularly because after all of the arrests in January 6th, there was this period of time where Trump could have issued some kind of massive pardons, and he didn't. And so they felt in some ways... uh, left out uh, from Trump's grand plan. Secondly, what's happened is that platform companies, and this began with Reddit a few years ago, have been moderating QAnon content um, Mm. to the point where it seems to be banned. And so these folks have have started to do what they call camouflage their accounts. And so they may switch to other key phrases in their movement, like where we go one, we go all, uh, in order to signal to one another that they're part of this in-group, but not to uh, trigger any kind of content moderation. Hmm. I also think in the long run, you know, this was an outgrowth of different kinds of what we call truther communities online. Uh, when you believe one conspiracy theory, you're likely to believe more. And if you are anti-establishment, anti-media, QAnon is something that conveniently uh, really represents uh, those points of view. And so many people have moved on to other flavors of the week uh, in terms of uh, new conspiratorial beliefs about the quote unquote deep state or new world order taking over the U.S. government. One of the things that you and your co-authors write is that a meme is especially powerful because it provokes an emotional response and that gives the purveyor of the mean, uh, meme and the receiver of the meme this sense of being on the inside of knowledge. And, and I want to add this from the book. The emotion involved in meme wars is a huge part of what makes them intoxicating, what drafts people into them in the first place and keeps them burning. Give me another example of, of that, that we who are not on the inside might be seeing on social media and not quite understanding how powerful this is to the people on the inside. Yeah, it's, you know, there's uh, this notion of, you know, quote unquote, a lot of people are saying, right? And so this idea Mm -hmm. that you're part of something, that there's a lot of rumors circulating, but that someone somewhere, usually labeled they, is holding the truth away from you. And this is why a person like Alex Jones becomes so popular is because online there are two emotions that if you can activate them, 
can make your content go viral. It tends to be when content is both novel and outrageous. And so novel in the sense that there's only a few people saying it um, and that it's so outrageous that maybe not everybody's going to believe it. And so some people might be motivated to share that content in order to debunk it. And what happens, of course, in social media is that the algorithms do not recognize a difference between a retweet that's a debunk and a retweet that's a, uh, a enthusiastic a confirmation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like, mm-hmm. so when we, when we have this happening uh, in social media, what you end up seeing is time and time again, uh, small groups of people that are trafficking in novel and outrageous content are able to trade up the chain to the national conversation. And then what follows from that usually is national media attention or some kind of buy-in from celebrities or politicians or other newsworthy individuals. Um, A good example of this is Stop the Steal. So uh, many people who shared Stop the Steal as a hashtag um, were enmeshed in this daily content war uh, where Rudy Giuliani and Charlie Kirk and uh, others on YouTube were intent on pushing this idea that the election had been stolen. You had Steve Bannon and others coordinating Facebook groups uh, and using his podcast to make people believe the election had been stolen. And by January 6th, you have a large group of people in America believing that their fundamental uh, citizenship and their fundamental rights as citizens had been violated and that the all legal recourse had been uh, tried and failed. This is the reason why Rudy Giuliani and, and his legal team put together 60 some odd court cases, all that failed. But the important mm-hmm. point was to show desperate people that everything had been tried and failed. And this is what's most noxious, I think, about the way in which memes can activate emotions that can then move people from the wires to the weeds because it was no longer then about having discourse online and people arguing with each other, but that people were going to take uh, the election into their own hands and storm the Capitol to stop the count. And that was very literal uh, in, in, in the sense of what ended up happening. And so when memes can motivate people to take action whether it's to mobilize for something like Black Lives Matter, which, again, is probably one of the biggest memes of our lifetime, uh, or they can mo- uh, they can incite through disinformation like Stop the Steal. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas on this January 6, 2023. It's a conversation with Joan Donovan. She's the research director at the Kennedy School Shorenstein Center at Harvard. And she's the co-author, along with Emily Dreyfus and Brian Friedberg, of Meme Wars, the untold story of the online battles upending democracy in America. And if you've caught the beginning of the discussion, you hear us talking about what a meme is, why it's influential, the fact that humor is a powerful accelerant for memes, but so are lies. So we're taking apart what a meme is, and we're talking about how influential 
they were in uh, claims of a stolen election, what happened on January 6th two years ago, and in general across social media in what has become a pretty dysfunctional political culture. Uh, Joan, I, because we're talking about this on January 6th, I'm curious about where you were as the insurrection began to unfold and what you saw you know, with your level of expertise and the research that went into this book, what you saw as it began began to unfold? Yeah, so my inkling about the violence that was going to occur on January 6th um, really started in December as I was watching different kinds of protests attack different capitals and watching the the street skirmishes play out uh, as people were trying to stop different uh, state legislatures from certifying the votes. And then there was this particular moment on December 12th when the Proud Boys and others were uh, essentially rioting in downtown D.C., and they had stolen a Black Lives Matter flag from a church and set it on fire on a live stream. And there were about 10,000 people watching the live stream when this happened. And many of the people on the live stream um, were cheering this on, cheering on this property destruction. And then nothing happened, right? There was some op-eds that were written, but there wasn't, uh, you know, this clear manhunt from uh, DC police or the FBI that something was going to be done about this particular, uh, event. And it occurred to me that events like these where people do get away with, uh, breaking the law, um, can embolden and incite them, uh, for the next wave of protest. Uh, it, it builds momentum. So not long after that is when Trump tweeted uh, infamously, come to D.C. on January 6th, we'll be wild. And you saw the entire machina of the fringe political far right uh, move into a tacit coalition. They didn't all agree with each other. But they knew that January 6th was going to be a consequential day, that they all showed up together uh, to support Trump. And so we followed that uh, period of a couple of weeks very closely on social media. Um, and by the time the 6th had rolled around, uh, most of my research team, we were gathered for a meeting. We were on Zoom, of course, because it was still... Uh, very dangerous to to have in-person gatherings. And Mm -hmm. we watched it together and we collected data throughout the day and we noted who was there and who had gone inside the Capitol. And uh, we saw a lot of repeat offenders, people who had been at other uh, protests committing violent acts that were at the forefront of the charge uh, into the Capitol building. And so unfortunately for us, there weren't a lot of surprises. I uh, I would say I thought it was going to be more bloody. I thought it was going to be more really? deadly. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. and, and one of the things that I had a, a psychologist explain to me, a crowd psychologist, someone who uh, has a PhD in understanding mob mentality, is that he, he, he said to me that he believed that the crowd had held back Uh, in particular because they were waiting for orders from 
Trump. They were waiting for Trump oh. to declare. And, and this is in, uh, you know, the three percenters and the Oath Keepers have made some public statements about waiting for Trump to declare, um, you know, the Insurrection Act so that they could bring their weapons in and that people had been stationed in different areas. Uh, these militia groups had stationed people in different areas armed uh, if Trump were to have done that. And here's where it became very important for us as researchers to understand, which is that by and large, the reason the internet was built in a way that it's built with decentralized uh, ability for anyone to publish anything as long as they have a website and social media does this as well. It's to circumvent authoritarian over uh, t- takeover of our communication systems. And one of the things that I don't think many people in the early design of the internet or social media understood or took very seriously, which is that that takeover might come from government itself. Yeah. Uh, Former President Trump, I don't know how adept he is, you know, technically. I mean, he knows how to work Twitter. We know that. But he seems to have this instinctive understanding of memes, of the power of memes. Would you agree with that? Where does it come from, do you think? Yeah, Trump seems to instinctively understand memes because of his background as a businessman. Memes are very important for the advertising industry. I I don't need to name companies, but if I say something like, I'm loving it or just do it, you're likely (laughs) to know what company that jingle is from. And there is something about these three word phrases that are memorable and they're sticky. And so working in advertising culture, working in business, uh, Trump seems to be filled with sloganeering and uh, quippy statements. But that's also not to address the sort of elephant in his campaign staff that really brought him Uh, some of the more um, loaded memes, uh, which is Steve Bannon. So Steve Bannon at that time was running Breitbart News. He had a reporter named Milo Yiannopoulos, and we describe Mm -hmm. all of this in the book. And Milo would go online and he had, you know, researchers and others that would bring these memes back from Uh, the depth of some of the most darkest places on the web. And Trump would then A-B test them. For instance, a meme like um, uh, build the wall. This Mm -hmm. is from a 2004 Minutemen campaign. The Minutemen were uh, vigilantes that patrolled the southern border in the late nineties, early aughts. And so build that wall was a slogan that they would print on t-shirts and chant at rallies. And so even through the history of trying to uncover where some of the memes that Trump uh, had adopted, where they came from, uh, some, some of them superseded social media, but there were other times simpler memes that keyed directly into uh, more scandalous groups online, like in 2016, you may remember 
this group calling themselves the alt-right. It was really a oh, rebranding yeah. of U.S. white supremacists. They weren't your old school KKK neo-Nazi skinhead types. These are uh, young men. Uh, many of them studied in continental philosophy and other uh, disciplines um, that would debate diversity and debate, you know, who was the uh, morally superior or um, uh, intellectually superior race. And and this group, the alt-right, really gained momentum because of the way that Bannon understood how to build populist movements. So Bannon and Milo Yiannopoulos made, in many instances, the alt-right what it is by calling it into being, by talking about it as uh, a burgeoning social movement. And then what the alt-right had done online in uh, sort of the the more uh, very online parts of the web is they had adopted a symbol from internet culture, which is this green frog named Pepe that is uh, at that point had been somewhat beloved by uh, young people online and you could, you know, easily find Pepe's on any platform. But the alt-right decided to adopt Pepe as a symbol and they would make different versions of this caricature, uh, including ones that looked like Trump and Trump eventually did retweet a Pepe that looked like him. And they would also make Pepe's, of course, that looked like Hitler or looked like a Nazi SS soldier. And, and it was all meant to be uh, ironic and fun. But part of it was about trying to use humor and irony to bring other people into this movement and to bring other people into this racist ideology. And so when Trump tweets a Pepe, when he tweets it, and then Hillary Clinton in 2016 is saying, you know, the, the alt-right are his biggest fan base, um, many people that are part of internet culture see what's happening, but mm. for the mainstream, it just seems nonsensical. Right. Uh, and so the right. book really sets out to explain how the fringe drives some of these mainstream political conversations through the use of memes. I thought this was really enlightening. You and your co-authors argue that Former President Trump was essentially memed into office. This is your phrase. And you say it was an all hands on deck situation, suggesting that it involved former adversaries who saw this end goal to get him elected and joined together where typically they might not have to get it done. Maybe you could give us two specific examples of adversarial organizations that work together to successfully get him elected? Well, you know, in, in some respects, you can see it happen throughout the 2015 primary, where you have Republicans that are really trying their best to undermine Trump. Um, and ironically, I think at that point, uh, Roger Stone had uh, registered the URL, uh, the web address of Stop the Steal, because he believed that the Republican Party was going to steal the primary from Trump. 
And so that's where that meme comes from. But that, uh, you know, in that moment, you had, you know, Ted Cruz and, and uh, Marco Rubio uh, really trying to uh, stop Trump from becoming what he later became. You also have people that like Steve Bannon, who by and large, uh, you know, in 20, in the, in the late 2010 or early 2010s, uh, was very dismissive of Trump. Many people were very dismissive of Trump as an actual candidate, but by 2016, these people who had been critical of Trump or didn't think that he would have a serious political run uh, were kind of shocked by the amount of ten- attention he was getting online. And so you had, uh, by the time he wins the primaries, mainstream Republicans supporting him, vicious white nationalists supporting him, people that uh, prior to that had never voted because they didn't feel like even the right wing was right enough to uh, to support them. So you have uh, those kinds of people that are coming out to Trump rallies and mixing it up and being part of his uh, groups. There's this infamous example of um, Matthew Heimbach, who's part, who used to run this group called the Traditionalist Workers Party. He was the young man, if you remember, in 2016 that was caught on video pushing a black woman out of a Trump rally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have these people who are avowed white nationalists that speak on this all, you know, rail all day long on podcasts, uh, now united and uh, voting for Trump, uh, even as, you know, other Republicans reluctantly have to then accept that the Republican Party uh, is shifting towards more fringe political actors. I I just want to read a couple sentences from this section that you've titled The Donald, Reddit Takes Command. And it says, on June 27th, 2015, a new subreddit was created solely dedicated to Trump's outsider campaign. They called it The Donald, and it soon drew users who brought the media of their own communities with them. Infowars tier conspiracy content, chauvinistic gamergate rage, anti-mainstream media attitudes, and memes imported fresh from workshop threads on uh, Paul. Unlike 4chan's anonymous users, Reddit users needed accounts who accrue karma reputation points for high-performing posts. Your commenting history, what subreddits you frequent, all show up in your footprint. I have to say, Joan, I have never been on Reddit. I don't know how many of Mm. our listeners spend time there, but there is a whole subculture here that, uh, that was largely revealed to me around Donald Trump, uh, from your book. How active is it now? I mean, he's declared his candidacy again. Are, are, is this community taking shape again? There. So interestingly, what ends up happening to the subreddit, the Donald, is that eventually Reddit does uh, remove it from the 
the main website because of its spreading election disinformation. And so the Donald moves to another place online and people are still going there uh, to continue to post, but it is really a shadow of its former self. And I think that one of the things we have to understand when we study social media or the internet is how the design of these technologies do foster uh, different kinds of uh, subcultures. And so with the Donalds um, being on Reddit, it slowly gained popularity because uh, people were linking to it in other from other Reddit message boards. They were saying this is the premier place to be discussing Trump. But mm-hmm. it also served as a coordinating hub for Internet activists that wanted to push Trumpian propaganda across the web, but they knew that they couldn't do it alone. And so some of the things that would be coordinated within these Reddit threads would be uh, attacks on specific journalists. Uh, They would, you know, have a thread about a journalist that they wanted to uh, go after, and they would talk about how they were going to do it. They would share the personal information of that journalist so that they could intimidate that journalist into silence. Uh, They would also put together mean campaigns and uh, follower trains so that uh, one another could find each other on different uh, social media platforms. And so these hubs, these coordinating hubs, like you could imagine, um, you know, a local field office having volunteers come in and spread the word of the candidate, Donald Trump had a very, very lively coordinating hub within that Reddit space. And he was able to, uh, and they were able to self-organize and coordinate uh, messaging on behalf of Trump's campaign. And then if there were journalists or activists or uh, competitive candidates that they didn't like, they would be able to control some of the public narrative on Facebook or on Twitter or on YouTube simply by brigading either a hashtag or uh, a thread on on Facebook by going in and pummeling the replies with hmm. uh, the, this kind of pro-Donald content or anti a content that was anti uh, his competitors. And so those kind of online armies are becoming more and more frequent for each political candidate. And sometimes this is good for democracy. It helps people understand what the platform is of certain candidates. It can be good for enrolling people into uh, low stakes political action, or it can be weaponized and turned into uh, an online mob. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show, and I'm in conversation with Joan Donovan. She's the research director at the Kennedy School Center at Harvard, and she's the co-author, along with Emily Dreyfus and Brian Friedberg, of Meme Wars, the untold story of the online battles upending democracy in America. I should have said the Kennedy School Shorenstein 
Center at Harvard. Um, you know, I want to ask you about some language that the January 6th committee has uh, has discussed and uh, and used in the argument that they're making that there be criminal proceedings against President Trump. Uh, and Liz Cheney has used this phrase quite a bit. She says he summoned the crowd, the mob. From what you saw and what you know, understand of the language that was used and the way memes were used that day and what was happening online leading up to January 6th, as you said, you, you and your co-authors had been watching this for a month. Is, is that, I guess, that phrase, the use of that language more important than many of us might understand? And do you think it's right? When it comes to online incitement, we don't have a lot of research on this. Uh, this has been something that our team has really tried to understand. Uh, how is network incitement different from the legal classification of incitement, particularly mm-hmm. the uh, line uh, in legal classifications is that it has to be speech that leads to kind of imminent Uh, danger or some kind of criminal activity taking place. Network incitement seems to work differently uh, because what ends up happening is that slowly over time, these ideas gain steam and through repetition, people become more and more familiar with and uh, perhaps have rationalized taking on some kind of criminal activity. And so language around that politicians use that is somewhere between metaphor and uh, a all out call for war uh, is, is going to be legalistically difficult to discern. Um, but I think that, what ends up getting people, you know, you have to think about all the things that go into getting to DC uh, on that day. What well, gets mm-hmm. people, you know, in their cars and on planes and spending their money to go to DC in January, you have to listen to them. And so one of the things that we have done in another study uh, is look at, well, what are the statements made by people who were arrested at the Capitol? What were the rationales that they put uh, on paper in their legal documents to say why they ended up at the Capitol that day. And one of the things that we found overwhelmingly is that um, people thought, one, that the democracy was stolen or that the election was stolen, and two, they wanted to go to support Trump. And so those rationales uh, are a result of a very successful disinformation campaign that by and large wasn't just pushed on uh, right-wing media on television or on radio, but also was uh, brought together through massive online coordination. And Mm -hmm. so when we try to understand incitement differently, we have to think about, of course, there are legal reasons why we talk about incitement in as being imminent. But when we think about it, this networked system that we now are confronting, uh, there are instances where people hear things like, 
will be wild. And they Mm -hmm. think that it is their duty to stand up uh, and honor uh, the president's wishes. And I think it's also different that, you know, he wasn't a challenging candidate calling for uh, people to stand up for him, um, even though he had lost. Uh, He's the sitting president, which I, you know, obviously we can't prove this with any empirics, but I personally believe that our politicians, especially when they're elected to office, must serve uh, the people and must uh, abide by the truth. And if they don't, it's political oppression. Um, I'll be interested to know how far some of these uh, recommendations in the latest January 6th report go in terms of uh, if Trump actually does get indicted or if others are uh, brought to justice. It seems like the only thing that was against the law was defrauding the public that is raising money uh, on claims that the election had been stolen, um, which is a little, in my own personal opinion, uh, sad that we don't have a way to hold our politicians to account for the havoc and mayhem that happened on January 6th. Well, one of the recommendations, though, is that Trump tried to subvert what was, I think, I'm trying to think of the language, to actually disrupt a proceeding of Congress, right? Where, Mm -hmm. and, and this comes back to that, he summoned the mob because he wanted them to interrupt uh, you know, the proceeding to validate the election, to certify the election. Um, mm-hmm. Are you saying that that feels you're going to be curious to see what the Justice Department does with that? Why? Yeah, just because it, uh, you know, we had somebody died that day. We had many, many people injured. Um, our congressional chambers were uh, broken into, you know, it, it, it just seems to me like there needs to be, uh, it's, I think what I'm struck by is just that mm. you can imagine this in a Hollywood movie. You can imagine it in uh, sci-fi in some way, but when you try to describe what happened on January 6th, we don't really have laws that hold our politicians to account for the for the uh, larger uh, damage mm. to mm. our democracy, to our systems, to our citizens even. Um, I, to me, it felt much more than disrupting a uh, ordinary activity of Congress, but really felt as if there was a major disruption of... Um, our ability to to have trust in these systems and that the president himself was taking advantage of his office uh, in a way that caused incredible harm to the people who had to defend that building uh, as well as to those that were um, 
in many ways duped into uh, believing that they were saving the Republic. Yeah, I think the fact that you use the word trust is meaningful here, because isn't this part of the reason, the the deeply declining trust in institutions, in government institutions, in cultural and community institutions, isn't that part of the reason that people turn to someone like Alex Jones, who I want to talk about, who, you know, this, the pernicious purveyor of these ridiculous conspiracies, and yet there's a certain segment of Americans who follow him and these insane ideas. And to a lesser degree, you will find a lot of that throughout the way that people interact and look to the internet for some kind of confirmation or guidance. Um, Does this for you come back to this, this declining trust in institutions? Um, I, in some ways, yes. And in some ways, no, which is to say that uh, I, I feel it's, it's fairly paradoxical in the sense that you do have someone like Alex Jones, who becomes incredibly popular because he utilizes YouTube and its algorithm in a very particular way. So when he first started to grow his audience online, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube were instrumental in the growth of his audiences. Prior to that, um, I had seen him at rallies, uh, you know, during Occupy and whatnot, handing out DVDs. Uh, It just wasn't going to scale. His uh, he had been using radio in television and uh, but he did have a fairly dedicated audience and not many people know why, but strangely in July uh, before the September 11th attacks, he on one of his radio shows claimed that or public access TV shows claimed that uh, the U S was going to have an attack and that it was going to be an inside job and that Hmm. people listening needed to call Congress and tell them not to do this. And he said in that show that uh, they're going to blame someone named Osama. Um, Really? uh, Yeah. I mean, it was, it was pretty interesting if you listen to the clip, but he had been doing that kind of prediction making for years and things either didn't come true for the most part. And then something happened and he uh, uh, was, you know, painted as this hero that he knew something that nobody else did. So both qualities of novel and outrageous. And then he started to lose his advertisers and and others uh, because he was also lauded as a bit of a, a crank and when social media really hits, Alex Jones is one of the very first people that understands how to be a multi-platform media machine. And he has the media training and understanding of broadcast journalism at his back. And so he really takes advantage of the openness of these systems. And frankly, all of this free broadcast infrastructure, being able mm-hmm. to stream live on YouTube for hours on end without having to pay any bandwidth costs. Uh, you know, we didn't 
re- we don't really understand what that means for our society. We don't have any regulations about it. But nevertheless, Alex Jones um, grew and grew and grew his audience through these novel and outrageous claims. And so in 2018, when uh, he had been making those statements about Sandy Hook parents and calling the stu- the, the children crisis actors and um, the question of whether to deplatform him or not uh, became one of platform ethics. And do these companies have an ethical responsibility for providing broadcast tools to someone like Alex Jones? And the, by and large, the companies came down on the side of, yes, we do have an ethical responsibility and we are going to remove his accounts and his ability to use our services. Um, so, it's not just about trust, which is to say that people did learn to trust Alex Jones. Um, Mm. What I think it has to do with more for me anyhow, is this corporate responsibility, which is to say that when you make a product, uh, what is your responsibility in terms of ensuring that its users are safe and that, the people who are using your product day in and day out, uh, that there are some kinds of protections against the abuse of this product to harm other people. And trust in our institutions has waned on and off for many years, depending upon uh, what people are experiencing the context really matters. I read a really interesting study recently that uh, when it comes to medical information and COVID people still really just trust their doctor, like their personal relationship with their doctor mm-hmm. more than Good. anything else. In some ways. It, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and local in terms of news, local television was something that people trusted more than, other conduits of the news and I, that it gave me a little bit of relief because of the way in which information travels online. Um, but yeah, not many people will come out and say, Oh, I trust YouTube or I trust Facebook or I trust Twitter. But nevertheless, the repetition of those ideas does make something feel more true. If you've read it and seen it redundantly uh, a couple dozen times. Right. You know, I wanted to ask you about the Fox defamation suits because there have been a lot of memes around the Dominion voting machines and now there's there are lawsuits including against Fox News which repeated the lies and repeated a lot of the memes through I mean through the whole campaign. Do you I mean th- this if if the award goes against Fox. I mean, this could be multi, multi million dollars in damages or more. Will, I mean, is it your sense? Are you watching this? I guess I want to know. And is it your sense that it could make a difference? Yeah, I have been paying attention to it. And I think that what it's going to show pretty starkly is the difference between the accountability systems built into typical or legacy broadcast media and what happens online. Uh, Mm -hmm. You have a very specific product, the Dominion voting machines that they got one job 
right? Which is to, is to get the ballots counted, right? That's it. Um, and so any uh, defamation or claim that the product doesn't work as it says it works, um, in legacy broadcast media, you have to be careful. You have to count your sources. You have to check uh, that this is the case. Whereas online, it's much more difficult to hold individuals accountable. Uh, where I think the missteps are, of course, in in broadcast media or cable uh, Fox News is that they didn't um, uh, publish any serious retractions or corrections to these stories. So it's okay to be wrong in the news so long as when you figure out that you're wrong, you correct it. Uh, but nevertheless, I think Dominion has a very strong case that could be uh, very damaging to Fox News. But I don't know if that's going to change the way in which we see news uh, and rumor mongering travel online. Mm, wow. And that's really? where there's some issues, particularly with a place like YouTube, where uh, you have some shows on YouTube that do very successful, large numbers. Um, and they do spread different kinds of defamatory content, but I don't know if it would ever really hold water in a, in a court, um, in the same way that something like, uh, suing a, a cable outlet would. Uh, but it's, it's hard to say, you know, a, a lot of people are mixed up about what, different protections they have on the internet. There used to be this feeling that, you know, whatever you said on the internet, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, somewhere along the lines, things got a lot more serious. And I think it has to do with our institutions like news and politics and education moving into online worlds. Um, but it remains to be seen if, if, anything else is going to change, even if Dominion triumphs over Fox. Joan Donovan is the research director of the Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center at Harvard, and she is the co-author of Meme Wars, the untold story of the online battles upending democracy in America. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.